It's very interested, very interesting in reading some things about you, Ian, about your playing days. You're very self-deprecating uh, about how you played. Tackled. I did one tackle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you said you describe yourself as a coward. Oh, completely. Um, no, I would stand there, and as they got really close, it was a big lump coming towards me. I just sidestep out of the way. Yeah. They don't worry about me. On you go and wave him through. <laughs> but uh, I had a taskmaster, Jim Telfer, who just yeah, loved wow. tackling and smashing people and everything. And we're playing an international uh, in Argentina. And they had a big 18-stone uh, centre. <clears throat> and he came charging towards me. And I looked round, you see, I was the only one between him and the goal line. <laughs> so I, as he got close, I sidestepped, pushing off my left foot to let him have plenty of room to go <laughs> But at exactly the same time, he pushed off his foot, so he came. So I just, straight at me, and I closed my eyes, wrapped my hands round, and my eyes tight shut, and... Crashed, he crashed down and stopped two inches from the try line oh, with wow. the ball. Wow. And Jim Telfer, the captain, went by and he said, Brilliant tackle! <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's <laughs> Who was your. That was my only tackle. Who was your toughest opposition uh, you, you, you came up against? Uh, I, I was lucky. All my cats I got played against. Uh, England, Wales, Ireland, France, um, and South Africa and Australia. But I managed to avoid, I never got a cap against New Zealand. Um, <laughs> but of, of that lot, the uh, South Africa game was a great game. It was at Murrayfield. And, and we beat South Africa, which we had very rarely done before or since. So I enjoyed that. Um, yeah, yeah. And George, who would be, who would be your uh, toughest opposition you've come up against? Um, when I played? Uh, I would say, I would say um, definitely all, all the English teams is always very, very physical. They're always, you know, like they, they do so much work in the gym, you know, they're so powerful and, and strong and heavy. And so that that's quite annoying to tackle, um, as uh, as you said, as um, you, you get off the field with uh, with short, very sore shoulders. Um, and obviously, when when we play the All Blacks, it was a bit like game of touch, always chasing after them, and rarely getting to touch them. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's um, I think obviously the yeah the, the English teams is always very very physical very, best, very game. physical yeah. best. Well, okay. especially with the forward. Yeah, don't move the ball around. George, what's the what's been the biggest law change that's made the difference during your career? I'm going to ask the same question to Ian afterwards as well. But what's the biggest the biggest law change that's made the most difference to the game? Good question. I think most recently is definitely if, um, just the high tackled. It's um, it's it's just changed the way um, coaches are teaching to tackle. Um, so a, a lot of it is focused on on, on just chopping. Well, you know, first one low, second one goes uh, tries and locks in the ball. Um, so that that's changed a lot. Well, before two players went went high, 
Um, so, so that definitely changed, and it just it just changed the way. I think the referees is something that they're looking at constantly. So anything that's you know even close to the to the shoulder, it's your straight to the bin. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's affected having training and you know coaching, and so um, but default even even the game. And what about Ian? What do you think? What during your time is playing? Well, I I, I agree that all this um, looking at the injuries to head injuries it's just so serious and and they, they've got to get to grips with it and they've got to go down from the head to the neck yeah. and lower it so that the, the head is just not knocked about because it's it's a really serious problem now and and putting head guards on that that apparently makes it worse not better <clears throat> so i i would agree with what the, the guys are saying and also, it was a huge change when you could no longer kick to touch from outside your, your 22. And, and that has helped the game to keep it more open. And I, I think that was a great little change. Oh, definitely. I mean, George, you won't know this, but back, back when I was playing at school, you could, if you got a penalty outside your 22, you could actually dig into the surface like you were doing a conversion and you could kick to touch from that patch of grass, as if you were converting, you could kick it to touch, <laughs> just the same as you're kicking for goal. And it just took forever because you had to you had to make this mound of grass, <laughs> which took about two or three minutes. Put the ball up, it would fall off, and then you'd kick to touch, and it's just nonsense, absolute nonsense. So, would you, would you get touch further away, or would it still be like five meters down the road? Just, just pretty much five meters down. The road. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a tactic to to, to take. To take as long as possible, take time out of the game. There was, you know, the ball in play wasn't great. The numbers wasn't great ball in play, that's for sure. We've got a question actually, which I think um, might relate to this kind of point. Um, one of our um, guests asked a question for the panel, at, well, in fact, all of you, um, with more concerns over players' long term health, do the panelists think we will see 100 plus international caps in the future? Uh, maybe George first, because having having international experience at the highest level. Um, yeah, I think I, I think so. Absolutely, those. Um, I mean, it's still pretty rare to get you know a hundred caps, and um, injuries happen when you're young, when you're old, and um, you know it's. Um, I think they'll keep on going. Obviously, the teams like Italy, Romania, Georgia, they, they have um, the largest amount of centurions just because um, so many people, you know, keep playing the same, you know, the, keep playing the games. And obviously it's much harder to get 100 caps for, for England or, you know, New Zealand or South Africa, you know, the, the teams which have the, the greater depth. But um, I think now they're selecting players at a much younger age because players are much readier as well. So that would obviously help. I mean, George North this this weekend, as an example, he had his best debut at 18 in a few days, 200 days or something. So, and he's the youngest centurion ever. So, you know, and he's been part of the modern game, a uh, test line as well. I think it'll have an effect, but laws will change. And I think long-term-wise, will be more or less the same. That's my view. I think it's, uh, it's uh, you balance it in two different ways that uh, very few reach 100 caps. Uh, there's probably... A dozen people in in the six nations, but what what's happened is that they 
retire earlier because it's so punishing the the modern game at, at every level but at international level particularly and Johnny Sexton is a, an exception at the age of 38 saying he has hadn't thought about retiring yet he said I'm only 38 uh, and he's a great Irish um, stalwart but but that's the the difference is uh, that's compensated by the fact there's so much more rugby. So I think that you'll still get um, a, a couple of people reaching 100 caps every year from the, the top teams. But that's very little, isn't it? Just a yeah. couple of people. I, so I think that's very interesting, actually, Ian, that, that, that you mentioned that because a player like Johnny Sexton is, is obviously very looked after by the RFU. He actually plays something like two to 300 minutes at club level. So obviously he only plays basically very important games, the derbies, the semi-finals, the finals of the uh, Pro 14 and the and the Champions Cup. So they try and put him in a you know a, a glass a glass box just just to yeah. make sure he is ready for for all the tests, and that obviously is going to help him to play maybe till he's 45. Mm. So you know obviously like the, these these things will happen, and maybe in the future the World Rugby might put in more tests within a calendar year, you know, at the moment we're averaging, I think in a non-World Cup year, 11 games and 14, 15 on a, on a World Cup year. So if they put more games in, more people have the opportunity to, to, to reach a high number of, of caps. But it's, it's very interesting. Most people retire now, don't they? The, the 32, 33 seems to be the, the sort of time that the majority, the average number would be retiring, wouldn't it be? I mean the, um, the yeah. I mean you've, the the financial side of things now is 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 ridiculously high. It's, I mean, so not ridiculously high. It's very high. So you know, and players, it's it is a relatively short career. It is a relatively short career. So they have to they have to make the money while they can. But you know, as George says, I think the, I think the way they look after players now in clubs is just a mile away from what used to happen at the start of the professional era. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they really do. They there were times there's stories of, of coaches ignoring doctors, ignoring physios, and just that's just an impossible situation to be in now. So I think because of that, I think there will be more players that go on and play to a, to a maybe to a later age and maybe have a potential to, to, to go for 100 caps. I mean, I can't believe George North has got 100 caps. It's, it yeah. only seems like yesterday that he was making his debut. So yeah. it kind of shows what's possible. Yeah, I think that's going to balance out as well with, with, with the wages. And, you know, if you do have a long-term serious injury, players now have the opportunity to cash out with, with insurance as well because obviously that's an important part of, of player welfare. Um, at the moment, we're looking after a player who had a serious injury playing against Wales, broke, basically reconstructed all of his ankle and has been out for two, two years now. And he's making a, a decision which obviously financially would make sense for him in the long term. He's only 26. Wow. And um, he's seeing if it's worth, you know, risking continuing playing or or getting a, you know, a check for, from the insurance. So that, that plays a part in, you know, when you make these decisions as well at these levels, because you've got, you know, most of your life is in front of you, not not yeah. behind you, you know. So oh, Absolutely. Internationals and in the Premiership, there have been a lot of red cards, primarily in the loose. Should the rules be reviewed? Do the players understand them? With the spate of red cards recently and the concerns over player welfare, what are the thoughts concerning orange cards as a possible solution? I mean, I think if I, if I can 
just jump in there. I, I, I heard Rob Baxter, the director of rugby from Exeter, kind of put it really well um, when he was asked about one of his players just red carded last weekend. And that was after a spate of five red cards the week before. Players know, you know, and the, the world rugby are doing everything they can. You know, there's been a huge amount of um, data collection on and, and, and investigations about rule changes and stuff like that. They've come up with a set of, of, of laws now. The players are very aware of it. The coaches are now very aware of it. It is now just for the players to be able to, for them to become autonomous in a, you know, high-speed high, high game. Yeah. They are very aware of what is right and what is wrong. I'm not saying that all intentionally, you know, the red cards are intentional. I don't think so. But that's the way that the, the World Rugby have decided that they're going to instill change is through kind of, you know, penalizing red cards and enforce uh, technique change because that's what it is. It's, yeah. it's technique change. Orange cards. And I know there's the Australian, I think, are currently testing a couple of, um, you know, law variations regarding if a player gets sent off after 20 minutes, they can play, replace him, uh, that player with another player. So it's 15 on 15 and stuff like that. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. But all these laws are governed by the data that, that is, that is collect, collated and collected by the World Rugby. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that there's, there's that red cards all over the place like confetti. I, I think that at an international level, how many red cards will there be in the Six Nations Championship? And I'd have thought there might be three or four, and that's five teams. It's loads of matches. Is that not right? No, no, I think you're right. I mean, George, what what do players what do the players think about these these kind of red cards? Yeah, that are happening? I, I think I think Duncan, you know, hit the nail on the head. Like um, everybody is aware that. If you go even remotely high, you're risking to going in the bin or going going for a shower. So everyone is aware of it. It's about changing behavior. Um, one one way is obviously to punish the teams that do so, and the technique that, as we talked before, um, getting technique rather than the coaches. And then um, it's it's going to take time, and a lot of it is because you know that there's a lot of um, like we are Islanders that, that Islanders that can't come across. And then for them, it's, it's hard to adapt because it's something which is still, you know, so they have a swinging arm. Yeah. And so it's, it's just technique and doing the right technique under fatigue, under decision-making, putting yourself, you know, autonomously in the right position to make the right technique in a tackle. And obviously there's some, sometimes where you're going at high speed and you can't really control when you're going for a high ball, what, what happens. Um, it's... It, I think now they're overlooking sometimes the referees are really looking at that. I think at the beginning of a, of a year, they're giving like a, a set of rules. You need to look at this and that's really what they're focused on. And maybe they're not looking so much at the breakdown or another area. Um, so I think just everyone needs to adapt and get better. And when, when that's done, they'll move on and change another aspect of the game. I mean, now we very rarely see any fights going on, I mean, uh, hasn't happened in loads of years, and that's just been a change of behavior through cards. The tackle, the hitting the guy the in the air, these yeah. whole things yeah. have kind of got out there. So it's, it's, it's a question of time. Eventually, everyone, <laughs> I don't know, every, every, here we go. 
I think we'll just it's just a question of uh, of time. The teams that learn faster it'll be it'll be it'll be easier for them to to to, to stop doing this. No, I agree. I agree. Ian, can I ask you can I ask you something about journalism and commentary? Uh, yes. Do you, are you still do you still watch the games and listen to the commentary and yes, and yes, you must have yeah. a kind of it must be quite interesting for you to do that. But yes. I mean, I like it. That one of the comments that you've made is that what's the point in saying is te- in, in commentating that someone's having an absolute nightmare? You know, yeah. there's no point whatsoever. So you can put it in much nicer ways if you possibly can. I learned that from Bill McLaren the high ball and the fullback drops it. Oh, it uh, up came out of the sky like a thunderbolt and he got his hands on it was knocked it on and it was a very difficult yeah. position he was in and and he said to me I mean, don't pillory the guy because I didn't pillory it when you missed 16 tackles in one match <laughs> I know Bill and I really appreciate that yeah um, and and I, th- I think there's a sensible line to go yeah yeah, I, I was. It's quite interesting. I think that the, the the style of commentary has changed since yourself and Bill and and people yeah. like him and Cliff Morgan. And Cliff Morgan. You know, it's it was much more poetic, back, yeah. but in those days, and it's much more factual now. Which I suppose, you know, I get that completely. But there's there's nothing as memorable as as those old commentaries. Definitely not. I think so. And and now it's it's all about um, statistics. Mm. There's couple of commentators that drive me mad well I just turn it down and <laughs> when I'm watching and this in the Six Nations just now where they're saying and that's the 36th time in 27 yeah. matches that he's knocked the ball on jumping at the line I think we don't want statistics like that if they help and it's really interesting but they're just churning stuff out an old Fatesian who um, is speaking, he says he's speaking from Milan. Um, most rugby following is in the north and the northeast of Italy. So why are all the Six nation, Nations matches played in Rome? I think well, very simply because the, it's, it's a great stadium in Rome. I actually played one year when I, I, I retired. I'd done both knees in, but without upsetting George, the fact that I could hardly walk, it didn't stop me playing against Italy. <laughs> I was Rome Olympic. <laughs> they, they weren't counting on your tackling anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do anything. But I could tell people what to do. <laughs> I recognised all the defending in that. And, it, yeah, it's, it's... What do you think, George? Um, I think it's, it's mostly because um, all the games are played in the capitals. And um, yeah. and uh, I think everyone would love to go for a lovely weekend break in February or March when it's 20, 25 degrees. Then in Rome, I think it's just uh, a great weekend of rugby to, to be had. The atmosphere, the Stade Olimpo is fantastic. The city is packed. It's, um, I think it's just 360. Like, imagine going to Tbilisi and doing the same thing or to Bucharest. It's, you, can, you can't really compare... Um, it, it's true, most of the rugby is based in the north, but Rome has a big, I mean, Ian would know, fantastic yeah. rugby culture. There's so many clubs and people playing rugby in Rome. Um, comparatively, like for example, in November, November tests are toured around Italy. So okay. um, 
Florence, Padova, Ancona, Genova. You, you play all, um, all all around Italy, and that's a fantastic experience because you bring you bring the rugby to places where you normally wouldn't have to, and you get to play in amazing football stadiums, mm. which will have a lot of a lot of history. Imagine playing in Milan. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I've never had the pleasure to. I still love going there. I got, I bought my ticket from the RFU for the England Italy match, but then of course, it was behind closed doors. Yeah, what a shame! What a shame. There's a question um, about the future of rugby and involving women in rugby. Mm. couple of old Fatesians, not just one, um, asked the question this evening, but they're quite interested in terms of the scope of the questions, I think, in terms of how to put it together best is, what do you see, um, how do you see women's rugby shaping up, but also how do you see grassroots women's rugby and the role of schools such as Betty's in that? So there's probably questions for all of you there. Well, maybe I'll start in terms of... I'll come in quickly and just... Just say that uh, women's rugby has developed tremendously in, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, and the, the standard is very, very high. I've gone to all the World Cups, and it's they, they play fantastic rugby, and it's it's getting more and more popular. Mm. Um, but it, it doesn't start as youngsters. The, the, it's when they get to their teens and that that they, they start playing but but it's a very high standard uh, i hope you'd all agree with that no totally oh. but that's what we've got to get right as school you know as one of one of our roles myself and duncan is to get these kids playing earlier and you know it's something we do do within the school so we have we have girls touch rugby from age kind of 12 13 onwards and that's the only way to do it give them a format that they can enjoy without fearing making mistakes or the, the, the nasty tackling that they have to do later and get them involved, get them engaged, get them away from the boys because they, they you know, they want their own space. They don't want to be mixing with the boys. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the biggest way that we're going to grow the game within the school, within the school uh, system. Duncan actually coaches one of the national girls teams. So you'll be interested. Uh, it's, it's an, it is. And, and I think we're on a, a, a really Hopefully, steep trajectory. COVID has obviously put a put a brakes on that. But you know, I've I've been involved in in girls rugby nationally, and the SRU are certainly, along with all the other Six Nations, heavily heavily involved. the The product is, as Ian said, is 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 up there on the on the national, you know, stage. Amazing funding and all that stuff is is the the, the parities you know coming together um, and. I think there's going to be a real tipping point of momentum. At the moment, we're just sitting on, you know, um, realizing fixtures. Mm-hmm. So there's more satellite uh, opportunities for for girls to, to to come together. It tends to be in Scotland, a smaller community that uh, that are based around the rugby club, the the the, 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 the daughters and the sisters, you know. Tagging on from their brothers and their dads or, or whatever, and they build it up from there. But there is certainly a a big strong movement from world rugby all the way down to grassroots. That it is, you know, we should be providing an opportunity for anyone out there, and you know, it, it's 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 building in the right direction. Just like uh, female football was maybe five years ago and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and with money becomes. The, the, the product will improve and when the product improves you know you'll get 
bigger crowds. And I, and I think, you know, we are at the bottom of quite a, quite a hopefully a steep trajectory moving up the way. Even, I mean, it must be even harder in Italy with, we know, with such a rugby culture, cult, sorry, a football culture in Italy. Uh, harder to create kind of, or kind of the, create the, the, uh, the excitement for girls rugby or is that something that's happening naturally? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm a big supporter actually of, of women's rugby. I, I, think it's, I think it's the future. Um, I think it's, it's, it's grow, rugby has to grow globally. It has to accommodate for, for, for women's rugby and I think there's a big space for it. And um, believe it or not, um, there's been huge success of Italy Six Nations uh, during the Six Nations has done so well on the women's front. I think they came second or third the past two, two years. Always, I mean, I think England and France take the lion's share of it. Um, but like they're doing so well. And I know a couple of girls who are playing in, in, in the English Premiership in the, in the, in the, in the women's tournament. So it's, um, I think it's the future. I think commercially it, it makes sense. I guess everyone involved in a game gets more people in the stadium. You sell shirts. It just, it's just, it, it is just because there's less competition in getting and getting girls involved in sport. Um, I think it's it's easier to get them involved earlier. Is better, obviously, but it's easier because there's less competition compared to boys, where everyone is fighting for the same, you know, for the same uh, for the same kids. Yeah. So um, I, I mean, I'm 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 all for it, and I think finding the right format for for when they're young is. Is your job? It is. I think there's just so much which can be done, and I mean, this year there's the World Cup going on, and I'm, I'm actually uh, a lot of the girls to train here with us because of the facilities, because it's a women's team, it's a few kilometres down the road from the club, and um, I think it's great. You know, I mean, there's scholarships now for the for the girls so they can study or work. And then take time off and uh, from from the full time jobs, so they can just concentrate on, on doing the rugby. And it's something the union has been really proactive. More can be done, but at least we're well, you know, we're on the right road at the moment. Brilliant. And also that the after matches, I, I've been to five <laughs> England World Cups and getting interviews with the players afterwards. They give really, really good interviews <sighs> instead of you know of your doing Wales, England, Scotland, Ireland, you put the microphone there and they're all defensive no matter what. Because the girls are chatty, chatty, chatty. Yeah. You get great, great um, rapport from them. And, and they love the game and they play it's a very high standard. Yeah. At the top. Thank nice. you so, so much. 150 years of rugby linking with the 150 years of Fessy, well, 150 years of international rugby, linking with our 150th anniversary Um it's it's a really nice kind of mix up, and obviously we've had lots and lots of people um, join us this evening, and loads of feedbacks even been coming in during this Q and A into my inbox. Of, you've made lots of people very happy this evening with Brilliant. your conversation, so thank you very very much. George, Mark, Ian, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for yeah. being able to share this with us. Selfishly, selfishly, I just want to say what an honour it's been to be on the same page as you. <laughs> Someone who I've listened to commentate since I played, since I, you know, all the way through my playing career, it's an absolute honour. So thank you so much. Oh, such fun.